Mana 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 this is social discasting welcome to social discasting a podcast where my guests and i discuss our lives amidst the wanton hellscape in which we find ourselves i'm brandon aka brandon i hope you're well my guest is one of whom i've known i think since i was five because we went to from kindergarten all the way to college together which is a wild thing that now that I realize I'm leaving it up to my memory, I'm not so sure, but I think that's right. He's an LA-based filmmaker who's worked on projects like Star Trek Picard, A Man Named Scott, and Shangri-La. Please welcome Justin Nichols. Welcome. Hey, how's it going? Hey, how's it going? Back to weird formal talk. Yeah, after, yeah. Yeah. Where that we works. are. <laughs> yeah. 30 years. We done did it. That is right, though, right? You, we went to, it was kindergarten? I believe it was kindergarten um, at Oak Brook Elementary. Uh there I think is. that's where we met. I don't know. I don't remember if you and I were in the same kindergarten class. I think we might have been Miss Anderson. I think we were because the funny thing is that I remember. I still have that uh, that old yearbook, and I looked at it randomly the other day. It's kind of funny how you rediscover or refine things like every five to ten years, and eventually you do it enough, and you're like, oh yeah, there's that again. Yeah. And if you look at the photo from the uh, yearbook, there's me, and then there's I won't say his last name, Robert. Uh, uh-huh. Right, right below me, and we're wearing the same shirt, like so identical funny. shirt. And I'm, I'm, I was uh, a a chubbier kid, and we're both blonde, so it looks like a before and after like Slim Fast commercial, <laughs> and a bl- and black and white photos of like five year olds. It's really funny. Yeah, it was early on in the in the Photoshop yeah. era. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But yeah, Oak Brook Elementary, just down the three miles from me at the moment too. Weird how that works. I drove by there the other day, and I was like, that's it. There you go. So much smaller now. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So much smaller. Got to start somewhere, but the deeply unfair question, how are you? Um, You know, I'm doing okay. I uh, am tested positive for COVID yesterday, so dealing with that, but it's, you know, I'm already four times boosted, so it, it it's actually kind of like an annoying sinus infection so if i sound a little nasally that's why but overall doing all right you know it's been an interesting year uh as i'm sure it has for everyone and uh but yeah doing pretty good that's good yeah well hopefully obviously it doesn't get worse but i think the boosting definitely helps it does still feel like to a certain extent you're playing russian roulette but I don't know, maybe maybe if keeping with that weird analogy, like more of a rubber bullet than it is a deadly one, thankfully, with the boost and the vax and all that shit. But I'm glad you're feeling okay at the very least. You know, like we were talking before this, I had it a month and a half ago before. I still haven't gotten this latest one, but I'm going too soon. And uh, it was kind of like, you know, mild flu, which I guess is more bad cold than anything. And uh, one day was bad, but otherwise it wasn't that bad, thankfully. That's good, yeah. So far, yeah, so far it's nothing like what I've heard everybody talk about, but there's still, I'm sure, days to go where it could change, but I, it seems so far relatively okay. First time having COVID, presumably? It is, yeah. I feel like I discovered yesterday morning I'm not some genetic superstar that they <laughs> yeah. kept. I, I never truly suspected I would be. I think I've kind of benefited from the work environment I've been in the last two years, whereas everybody I'm around is tested regularly and we're wearing masks at work. Um, so it is so regimented. Yeah. Yeah, completely. I, you know, I get tested every Tuesday. So I tested negative on Tuesday. So I, I must've caught it Wednesday night um, or Wednesday during the day. Um, but yeah, so it's a very regimented thing. And I went two and a half years without catching it, assuming I didn't catch it uh, right before and not know that that's what it was. But I don't, I imagine that, that I didn't. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah. So I, I think I just lucked out based on circumstances more so than any sort of superhuman power that I clearly do <laughs> not have. <laughs> yeah. For you, has it been kind of a, a weird thing? Because after all this time, and again, like I had a month and a half ago, but after all this time of not, it's almost weirdly demystifying to get it. And you're like, there's kind of a weird relief in it after all this time and knowing you know, this big, bad, scary thing, which it still is and is still an awful thing for a lot of people, that knowing it's not, okay, this could be so much worse, thank God. Yeah, yeah, I think so. And then I, I do, you know, like I've been four times boosted. I'm like, oh, so I have a very mild form of this and it's annoying. You know, had I not been, maybe it would have been terrible. I don't think so. I've had family members who've had it and yeah. the ones that I'm uh, directly related to, they 
didn't have it too terribly. So I don't imagine it would have been that bad, but it's still, you know, it does like take away a thing. Cause it's always in the back of my mind. I think I was hyper-focused on it more so than I know, especially than my wife was. And, um, right now she doesn't have it. Luckily she had it, uh, nine months ago and I didn't catch it from her at the time. Uh, okay. which is kind of interesting to get it now. And, uh, but, uh, it does kind of make it seem like it's simpler and it's kind of nice cause I've got a few days off of work. So I get yeah. to just like chill and relax and watch TV and movies and read and do what I, I want to do without having to feel too guilty about it. Say, so, and you can do it through the prism of altruism. I'm looking out for everybody else, right. so that's why I'm I'm watching Twin Peaks: The Return again, it's for the sake <laughs> of everybody else. It's not for me; it's for you, really. That's what I, I actually. That's what I watched at the start of the uh, lockdown. I watched all of Twin Peaks, um, and then uh, got really mad at the finale. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I was like, "Why did I do this?" I made a big deal. Not a big deal. I, I <laughs> let me rephrase that. I made a single post on Twitter, made a big deal about starting it. I'm like, I need to watch this. This is a blind spot. And then I watched the first episode and it was great and I loved it. But I realized I've got to pay attention to this fully to be able to completely consume it, understand it, appreciate it. And in that moment, I was not ready to do that. So I need to return to it. Return to the return. Yeah, exactly. I need to go back to it and really get the full Lynchian experience. It's it's very fascinating and like it's so well made and I will randomly find myself thinking about stuff from it. Uh, and it was just like the very end of it that made me mad. But I think that was like an intentional part. I'm not like I don't begrudge David Lynch in any way about it. You know, it's just like I was like, what? This is how it ends. And not in a like I'm, I'm a I'm a fan of Lost. I'm not. I'm not angry at the lost finale uh, or anything like that. And so it was just like, what all this, I don't know. And it's, but I will find myself randomly thinking about stuff from different parts of that show at random times and other shows that I deeply, deeply enjoy have never done that. So it's like, I feel like I have a healthy anger towards it. That is through a prism of appreciation Yeah, and not like, you know what I mean? I don't know if that makes sense, but yeah. No, I know what you mean because I've been thinking about that recently about how there are so many movies that I really enjoy in that moment, but then I never think about again. But even if a movie, like to your point about the return, like frustrates me, angers me, whatever, or if I don't like the movie, but I still think about it, that's an accomplishment. Yeah. That's sure. more than I can say for a lot of movies, but at least you remember it. Right. So like the movie Halloween Ends that just came out, uh-huh. that movie is getting lambasted. I watched it. I loved it. I thought I had a blast. That's awesome. Yeah. And now, mind you, it took me a solid like 15 minutes to get on the wavelength of the movie. And then something happened. I'm like, oh, okay. That's what this is. And then I was in. I, I still think about that. Like the uh, the movie, I'm still thinking about that. The movie I've, I still think about more than any of the movie that's come out this year easily is Nope. I think about it yeah. once a week at this point. I still think about it. It's amazing. I, I do too. Like I, I need to buy that once it comes out next week. But it's something that I, I I think about regularly because it's so fascinating to me, you know, like being a person just like working in an industry in a more of a pedestrian role that I do. It's I feel like every single one of those characters I've met and interacted with in reality. And that's I, right here. Yeah, I find it so fascinating and so believable. And they filmed it uh, in the same town where we filmed Star Trek Picard. And so like. I just felt like this deep sense of relation to it. Cause I was driving through those same areas the whole time and uh, just amazed at what they were doing. And I actually, where I work now, I think they filmed some of the deleted scenes uh, outside on the lot that I work on. And so it's kind of become this thing that uh, I'm just so fascinated with. And I, I, it feels very special to me. And I think it's quickly becoming one of my favorite movies of the year, if not the last several years. It's up there for me. Like I think it's it's probably easily top five for me of the year in a very good year already. And you know, like the big Oscar rollout films haven't even really come out yet. And there are a couple in there that I'm I'm probably gonna love. Like Tar, I'm gonna love that movie. I already know it. Yeah. I already know I'm gonna love that movie. 
Just any kind of like master class performance, the return of Todd Fields, all this stuff. Like I eat all that up. I'm in. It's over. You know, like the Banshee of Innersion. I've never said that out loud now. I think about it. <laughs> Martin McDonough movie. I'm going to yeah. love that movie. I'm in. I already know. It's over. I think that's... Uh, I, I am curious to see because like, I feel like this, this year's summer blockbuster season has been so phenomenal um, compared yeah. to other years. I don't know if we'd like appreciate the theatrical experience more now after the past couple of years, but I'm curious to see if the art house stuff that comes out uh, at the end of the year could even actually ultimately hold a candle to like just the pure spectacle cinema that we've experienced. Uh, I don't think so. I think that this is really just a year of, of at least a handful of particularly great and like resonant blockbuster films in the form of Top Gun Maverick, RRR. I think, nope. You know, it's a different form of that, but it's still that for sure. It's big filmmaking and like, you know, size. But I'm sure I'm leaving somebody out, but those are like the big ones for me anyway that really, really stand out of like, oh, these are particularly great to me. I, I agree. I think they're the, so far, those are the three best films I've probably seen this year. And I, I suddenly am blanking on other ones that I have seen, um, but they are pretty good. Uh, it, like, I think that, I think they'll be remembered. I think so. Absolutely. I think um, it's funny, like with Top Gun Maverick, I almost turned it on the other day. To like kind of have it on in the background, but also return to and like sit down and watch certain parts of it. But I didn't do it because I didn't, <laughs> I didn't want the, like the jolt I got from watching it the first two times to maybe dissipate a little bit. You know, is right. that you know? It's like wow, I want this third viewing to really count. So I didn't turn it on. I started it, and I'm like, no, I can't do it because I really because the fact that I felt it in the theater, like obviously big time. And then manage to somehow replicate that feeling at home. Like I, for all I know, I could go three for three, and I really don't. I don't want to ruin that because it's such an amazing feeling of, for your brain to both process the nostalgia and the new at once. It's amazing. I love it. Yeah, I it's it, it's a pretty fascinating movie because I I remember being in line at the grocery store a couple of days after we saw it, and uh, there's a couple behind me, and they saw something about, oh, that Top Gun movie is really good. And I just turned around to him. I said, it's fantastic. <laughs> I was yeah. like, I was like, you should just, you should go see it. It is absolutely fantastic. And they're like, huh, really? And I was like, yeah, they're like really flying in those planes. It's really cool. They're like, Tom Cruise is really flying in those planes. Oh. And then they made, you know, like the jokes that people tend to make. And I was like, yeah, but it's really good. And uh, I hope that that couple then went to see it, but I feel like they, probably did just because like so many people i feel like everybody who saw it is a movie people were talking about and yeah some of the other uh standard pre you know like pandemic like everybody would talk about how great avengers endgame was and tell people oh you should see this but there's such a level of homework involved and i feel like this stands out that like you don't even have to have seen the the first film to get what's going on it i'm sure it helps inform your, your yeah. enjoyment of it but it's such a great it adds a layer i would imagine you know at the very least of like it has that nostalgic layer for sure but i think tarantino said this about the movie that that he loved the movie and that he said that joseph kaczynski the director managed to make a tony scott film which is something he didn't think any filmmaker would be able to accomplish yeah and i thought that was very telling and very insightful yeah it is i mean it, i think it's telling that they held the movie for like two years because yeah. i remember I remember seeing the trailer in 2019 and it was like yeah. everything that was in it was, were the big set pieces. So that movie had been ready to go. And I don't know. It's just, it's no, such a fun it, it was fun two, movie. two and a half years between the teaser trailer and then the new trailer for the movie, let alone the actual release of the movie, you know, <laughs> to its credit, you know, that never would have happened if Tom Cruise was not behind that movie. Cause that guy right. is truly, the cinematic experience, the theater experience, is truly sacred to a guy like him, which is something I don't think any other actor out there has, or any other like quote unquote movie star still has that reverence for it, who would wait and wait and wait to that degree. Even Christopher Nolan, who was just like, go see Tenet, Tenet's coming out in IMAX, go see it. Even he still released it in the middle of a pandemic. Right. Which I think if that had waited, it probably would have done a lot better. I feel like people would have 
enjoyed it more because it's not like it's tied to any sort of pre-existing IP that you have to see it at this point. And so I wish they'd held it because I would have loved to have seen that on an IMAX screen. It's a bummer. Um, yeah, he did a yeah. disservice. As we know now, you know, at the time, who knew? But yeah, uh, but the fact that he, man, he was hellbent on releasing that movie in the theater and now. like, But I think also, though, with that situation in retrospect, it might have been like he was ready to move on to Oppenheimer. And he was just like, let's give it the best shot it has. I'm going to do everything I can to promote it. Go see it in the theater. But also, I need to make this movie about the atomic bomb and the guy yeah. behind it. Yeah. And and we have a countdown trailer we need to release eventually, so do that. <laughs> that trailer's really cool. Yeah. You know, and now that I think about it, too, well, he probably had to get Tenet out because he had to be able to figure out the schedules and secure the performances and the appearances of every actor you know in Hollywood <laughs> in Oppenheimer. I mean, more credit to him. I get why people would want to work with him, for sure. But he's got everybody in that movie. It's incredible. Like Between that and the Barbie movie, I think and I think every person of some note has a role in one of each of those two movies. Yeah, it's pretty fascinating. I think it's it might be also the effect of uh, people might be easier to get because there's like, I know you've talked about Tom Cruise being the last movie star. And then yeah. now um, I actually saw something that said that Marvel is no longer going to be doing these like multi-picture deals with these actors because they don't have to and so uh, i wonder if it's like these people the the nature of the market these people have to work and so it's easier to get so many huge stars to all be in a movie and then that becomes the event in itself and that like could you imagine something like this happening before now and it's going to be good I, I i have no doubt i'm i'm excited to see it but i wonder uh how that's going to be and that uh, the new Damien Chazelle movie is kind of the same way. The cast for that is super stacked. And um, I haven't trailer watched the trailer is, for it yet. Uh, it's wild. It, yeah. It's a it's a movie that shows you a lot but tells you nothing. Uh, the like trailer. That's, that's my favorite kind of trailer. Yeah, it's you can't piece anything together. as to, It doesn't tell a story at all about what's happening. It just is, wow, this is like 1920s early Hollywood, which, by the way, I'm all about. I love that stuff so much. So I will, I was already going to watch it. I'm absolutely going to watch it. But it looks, the trailer is very madcap. And it, it's got all kinds of stars in it. It's going to be good, I think. That's I think cool. he's pretty, you know, I don't think he's had a bad movie yet of his three or four, wherever many he's made. I'm, I'm excited to see it. I'm like, I think it's interesting that both Margot Robbie and um, Samara Weaving are in it because they, they resemble each other so much. And yeah. And they're friends in real life too. Yeah, and I wonder if like, are they playing sisters? Are they? Is it like a Vertigo situation? You know, <laughs> like I it know would absolutely be, nothing that about it, the movie, but I don't really either. It would be fun though if, in its weird way, and almost like on a, um, in a way to comment on Hollywood, one is the up and comer, and the other is being replaced by the up and comer. That would yeah, that'd, that'd be, be fun. Definitely be interesting. Yeah, yeah, that'd be interesting. Um, I'm excited about that movie though, and. It's one of there's several movies that I'm really looking forward to. I I do think it's been a strong year, um, but I I think that sometimes though, the fact that it seems stronger in blockbuster terms for some people that are going to be like, okay, I won that thing of the year. But I was like, yeah, no, it's I've been highly entertained all year by something or another. Yeah, I I hope that a blockbuster movie is what wins Best Picture. Like every you know. I do feel like all the best best picture winners of the last 10 years have been great movies and great films, but so many people haven't seen them. And yeah. I think it's creating a disconnect between uh, audiences and uh, filmmakers. And I, I wonder if there's like a, a bubble that's slowly being created in just like everywhere there's bubbles and uh, different like, in like, societal groups and stuff but is there one that's being created to where uh it seems like you have to enjoy the most intellectual movies in order to be able to even appreciate going to see a, a movie in the theater or something like yeah. that and I, I i hope it's something that becomes a a more democratized kind of enjoyment generating factory uh that it used to be in a way i don't know I'm, i feel like i'm kind of uh, no, I, I know bit, what you're but, saying 
All uh, I'm thinking though is in terms of they can, you know, best picture winner, Avatar two, the weight of water. Yeah. It's in play. And <laughs> it Avatar almost got there. Yeah, it, um, it, I mean it did. That would be great if a uh, if a sequel <laughs> one best picture, but its uh, predecessor did not. The fact, the reason I don't think it's going to win is even if the movie's amazing and everything, the thing that it has going against it is that we know there are two or three others coming out. Yeah, and they really like rewarding the totality of a film series, you know, more than anything. Like you know, Return of the King winning Best Picture as opposed to Fellowship or Two Towers yeah. even. Which yeah. I think that's the weakest of the three, Return of the King. But it's more about the culmination of the body, you know, the body of work and what all that was done in this amazing trilogy. In that case, right. But you know, I, it it could win it. I rewatched. Um, I need to finish it, but I started rewatching like uh, you know pre Halloween viewer um Avatar. And it's the first time I'd seen it since, I think, the theater in 2009. And I was thinking, is this benefiting from blockbusters not being as good as they used to be? Which is such like an old man thought, but I did think it. (laughs) Either way, I loved it. Absolutely loved it. It's so fun. It's so well made. And the the visual effects hold up so well. I believe it. And I, I... I didn't see the re-release, but I'm curious too, since it's it's remastered and and redone. And so I imagine, like even now, like once when it's put back out and put back on maybe Disney Plus or wherever, it's gonna look so much better and and just be phenomenal. Like they they work really hard on those movies, and uh, I, I everybody acts like he it can't be that good. I think it's like a weird. Uh, it's a bad faith thing that people have because they don't want to think that it was good yeah. uh, in their memory. It, but like James Cameron rarely makes anything bad. And that dude he doesn't miss. Yeah. He doesn't miss. I, I heard somebody put it the other day about Cameron that, first of all, I, I would say, I think he's a, like, and I don't use this word lightly, I think he's a genius. I really do. I think he's an absolute, like, true visionary. A guy who has a movie he wants to make and then, and then does this so often invents the technology to facilitate the thing he wants to make it's incredible it's incredible like he's as much a true like literal engineer as he is a director at this point and a film creator it's amazing but somebody put it as that he has an uncanny ability to know where the technology is at the time and and knows how to like bring it up to the line of what can be done that isn't pushing it past where it's at at that moment which I think is a great way to put it because like even he used, he he uh wrung every last ounce of that CGI for Avatar and the quality <laughs> of it that he could and it and rewatching it you know in uh I guess it was 1080p or Blu-ray it, it looks great it looks for the most part I mean there are little moments here and there of course but it looks great even you know 13 years later it's amazing I saw it, I think it was an informational meme uh, that was like, do you know why Avatar was, I think it was like 272 minutes or however long the, the film is. And it said, because that was the size of the, uh, the reel that could be placed in IMAX projectors at the time. That was the largest you could get the film uh, placed uh, Interesting. to go through the projector. And so it was like every single minute they could get, they put it in there. And so I guess that's why they had that more extended edition that they put out on, blu-ray that came out with i think some stuff with jake sully on earth prior to going and like i haven't yeah that was was the version i watched yeah yeah Um, i've I've been curious about that i know there's stuff about like him being in a artificially neon world as a human and then going into the bioluminescent world of pandora that ideas like that i think are kind of cool it adds nothing to the movie i can tell you that much i believe it (laughs) it it definitely is that you know like there's it's so rare that a director's cut comes out and you're like okay well here we go there you know this is so much better usually it's like well you can without having seen the movie you can almost tell the things that were added after the fact because it just it's kind of a departure from what's going on really or the main crux of the film but um i mean they're not it's not like bad bad or anything but it definitely is a 
okay, well, we saw the first theatrical cut, and it's a much more efficient movie, and it gets there faster, and that works a lot better for what we're doing. I mean, the only thing I could think of in terms of a director's cut, for whatever reason, that was like, oh, this changed a lot of things for this movie and made it better was like Kingdom of Heaven, yeah. the Ridley Scott movie. That was a yeah. big change. That worked a lot better. I feel like his uh, his director's cuts tend to be actually worthwhile compared to other filmmakers. I also feel like Coppola tends to make have better director's cuts. Like I don't know if you saw the the Godfather coda that came out a couple of years ago, the retooling of Part Three. I did a lot better. It was a yeah, really, it is. It's a good it's, movie. Yeah, and like I I've always been a Godfather Part Three apologist. Anyway, I feel like I I understand the issues people had with it but it's still like a really great movie and like you would watch it and enjoy it. If you, it just, it, you know, is stacked up against two masterpieces unfair, you know, unfair to its existence. And that it happens to be in that, uh, it never had a shot, not a reasonable one. Never. But the, like, I, I feel like Ridley Scott and Coppola, like they're, when they like retool a film or put out a director's cut, it's, it's, they're the ones that are usually better than like the uh euro trip unrated extended edition <laughs> yeah, yeah you know <laughs> it's not tacked on stuff like they actually yeah. have a vision for it and a purpose now that said ridley scott becomes a bit of a mad scientist sometimes with those cuts as well you know yeah. with, um, specifically talking about blade runner having i think four different cuts to the point of having so many cuts that it had to be like name one of them had to be like the last director's cut or something like you yeah. know he's like i swear i'm done with this one well, what's like, fascinating, I, I've learned since then, like, the majority of those other cuts that came out afterwards, he didn't really have much to do with it. Even the one that was called the director's cut, he had nothing oh, really, really to do with it. And so it's the final cut is the one that he actually was hands-on with. Um, but, yeah, I think it's – it, and I, that goes to show you, too. Like, I, I do think he's a little bit of a mad scientist, and he knows what he wants and can just, like, put this stuff together – so quick and so efficiently and but then because i think he has a sense of efficiency when extra stuff is cut out and it's missing he knows it seems at least what could go back in and still make a good whole complete film generally i would say he does he does feel like he's like um like he and soderbergh are two sides of of the same coin in a weird way in that they know exactly what they need to do to get this made yeah. but scott is a, a studio filmmaker far more bigger budget you know like more of a track record and soderbergh is like that guy's he's like a unicorn i guess just the fact that he can be like we wrapped filming and uh hey do you want to watch the movie like quite literally having a he cuts as he goes yeah and pretty much has a work print at or for lack of a better word on rap the, like for the rap party if they want to watch it like that <laughs> and it's incredible and you know granted anybody can do that and it could be an absolute piece of shit but the fact that he has a mark of quality is incredible he's an amazing filmmaker i love his stuff kimmy yeah. i thought was great i really like that movie i think that's the best uh covid movie or at least a film that acknowledges that covid exists uh, yeah because it doesn't make it a point of the story it's just there and that's the first one I do. I, I will say, did you see let them all talk? The I did. I really liked that movie. I, I think that movie's great. And I wish more people talked about it. And I think the, the fact that they made it while they were traversing the Northern Atlantic on that boat for real is just fascinating. And it would have been fun to work on, get a free cruise. Uh, <laughs> I didn't know what to expect from it. You know, um, I was just really got, I mean, the title t- informed that for me, but it was just like, uh, Wow, they're going to be on a boat talking a lot. And then you watch and you're like, well, first of all, yeah. And second of all, it's great. I I thought it was, I think it's a great movie. There's like, a, um, Underseen. There's a, a line in it that, uh, what's her name? Catherine, Catherine Weist. Is that her name? The actress? Uh, oh, Weist. She, Weist, yeah. She, Diane she, Weist. Diane yeah. Weist. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And look at me. Uh, <laughs> she's, <laughs> she plays the evil queen in the, uh, the, five-part miniseries from the late 90s the 10th kingdom that i feel like everybody should go watch for some campy good fun times uh interesting okay but uh starring john larroquette um and michelle williams but anyway uh 
she, she has a line in that movie uh, where she, they're, I guess while they were filming it at least is when the first Starlink satellites uh, went up in a, went up into space. And um, I don't know. I don't think she improved it. I think it was written in, but they, they talk about how like now there's these stars that are moving that are forever going to be artificial and the sky will never be the same. And it's just kind of really like this, the, this really thoughtful line uh, that's in the middle of it that I think about uh, years later that I wish more people would see and, and take in. Cause it's one of the, uh, I don't know. I feel like I'm rambling a little bit again, but I, I feel like it's it's one of the best lines in a film in the last two or three years, and it's uh, so topical and so specific. And I feel like that's one thing that his films do is that they place you specifically in the world uh, that they take place in, and uh, there's a heightened sense of reality, especially the with the small cameras that he tends to use. You know, sometimes iPhones and other like small red cameras that he's able to put these people in a more realistic environment that i find really fascinating no i agree and i think he it's weird because he he does things that are him experimenting but they're also good at the same time like it's a successful experiment it's a real proof of concept of what he's trying to do and he also when he is making films it's such a it is both volume and quality at the same time quantity and quality to the point where i forgot that he also released no sudden move into that last year as well oh yeah but <laughs> by Ed Solomon, right? Yeah, I uh, I missed that one, but that yeah, he like he's able to put out like four or five movies a year if he if he wants. And like ten years ago, he was retired from filmmaking. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So. He he puts out an annual list of all the stuff that he watches. Yeah, which I read. I I look at it. I comb through it every year. I love it so much. Um, it's also cool just to see like, oh yeah, he he's friends with like every filmmaker. So you see him watching their cut of their film months and months and months in advance of it ever coming out. Yeah. So he's just watching everything. He's watching the stuff coming out for the year in like January or February every year. I wonder if his list of doing that is what inspired Letterboxd to become a thing. If there's some tech bro who was into Soderbergh that was like, let's let's turn this into something. (laughs) I can see it, honestly. Yeah. Wow. He's making a a list out of the love for it. How do we monetize this? <laughs> exactly. That sounds about right. Yeah, I'd believe it. Um, I saw by the way on your on your Letterbox top four, number four. Not that it's ranked or anything, but Sorcerer. Sorcerer <laughs> yeah. is up there now. Yeah, it it, it shocked me. I uh, I, was, I did have four hundred blows up there, which I still love that movie. Uh, yeah, but I was just blown away by that that movie uh, in. It, at least as of right now, it feels like something special because so many people I know have never seen it. And I was just blown away about like everything seems so intentional and it's such a huge undertaking. And I, I like those kind of morality tales of uh, where you have these broken people who are just trying to do one last thing to try to, fix everything in the in their world and it may or may not work out for them you know and that film it's just it blew me away while i was watching it's amazing it. yeah amazing it you know it's funny you said that about how um just like the difficulty of it because you watch that movie and the whole thing shows like what a pain in the ass all this is you know like what they're going through because they're tra- they're transporting leaky dynamite in yeah. the worst conditions possible and then i think yeah, well, also, the filmmakers and everybody on the crew was experiencing those miserable conditions, too. It makes me think about how, like, uh, you watch, like, a Bear grill show, uh-huh. and he's going through this misery of climbing up a mountain, and then I'm thinking, well, we're, we're seeing this because of the true misery involved of what the camera person has to go through. Exactly. They yeah. have to experience all that shit but carry a camera, and he just has to talk. Deadliest, <laughs> deadliest catch. Yeah, I think about at least my notions of what it was when it first started the camera guys that were out there in the storms, <laughs> the crashing waves, yeah. but like, yeah. And yeah, I, th- I do feel like everybody should go watch that film. And cause the, the bridge scene alone is just fantastic. And I was, I was reading some stuff about it and how they like, they constructed it with hydraulic lifts all along it that are 
pretty well hidden, but just like, uh, I saw the trade, like I, I saw on Twitter, somebody linked to some article about why this film is great. And I think I'd maybe vaguely heard of it years ago, but then I was like, Oh, what's this trailer? And I watched it and I was like, Oh man, this is, this looks so crazy. So insane. And it's, there's like a telephoto shot of the guy on the bridge, kneel down while like the truck is rocking back and forth. And they're trying to like guide it over this, treacherous river in the middle of a storm with dynamite i don't know it's just like everything amazing. Could possibly go wrong and it is fantastic and then like the way that it uh, i don't think this spoils anything like opening the opening of the film you've got kind of like four vignettes uh following the four main characters and just like little choices like the time is spent on the the like the least amount of time is spent on the the most evil of the four at the very beginning but then like you f- start following uh the guy who, uh, who who's done something wrong with uh the money that he like lo- got from his father-in-law or something about that yeah. and just it's like it's the most gruesome PG rated movie i've ever seen in my <laughs> yeah. life probably and uh but just like the fascinating stuff in like Roy Scheider the scene in the church and and you realize like the wedding the the woman the bride and the wedding she has a black eye and like the church is turning of uh the other way while that's going on and still putting that and so like you don't feel as bad about them robbing the church you know <laughs> and, like, yeah it's almost like a roy shatter rolling out of the french connection to then be in this movie you know like it it aesthetically is very similar to the scene you see with him. Yeah. And it's all these, it's kind of a form of like getting the band together, you know, the, the gang together in like oceans 11, but all these people fucking up and having to go to South America or wherever. Yeah. And then how do we see them at their lowest and then see them in the, in how do you, how do you get, what brought these people to all accept this job? That is an awful, awful decision. Right. It's and amazing movie. It, amazing it's, movie. It's incredible. I watched it twice, like within a week, and I was like, "This is this is fantastic." I had that a couple of times in the last or during all this in the last couple of years of movies that were generally considered by enough people anyway to be like classics that I just never saw, and then I was finally like, "I need to watch these." And so I had that moment that you're having, I think, with Sorcerer, with two movies off the top of my head, probably more. But it's like finding a $20 bill in your pocket. <clears throat> Excuse me. Like finding a $20 bill in your pocket. You know, like it was always there, but it's like it's new to you. And you're like, oh, this this is a new discovery. And I had that with Clute and with Five Easy Pieces. I need to and see both, both of, of those. They blew me away. Amazing. Amazing movies. Um, and something wild also, speaking of that, the Jonathan Demme movie. All three blew me away. I've seen them several times in the last few years. They're incredible. I've I've always meant to see Five Easy Pieces because it's my understanding that it was one of my dad's favorite movies uh, back in the seventies. Okay, and I think that uh, he, I think he found some of the stuff that uh, Jack Nicholson says in it to be really funny and and um, I don't know without any context, I don't know what it was. I don't know if it was appropriate or not. I'm sure it <laughs> was, but uh, you know it. I've always meant to see that movie i've always intended to see it just because i know he was a fan of it uh as a young man so i need to check that out that that's that's one of the great things about discovering these movies like that is like there's so many that we've all missed and like we all have we all have our blind spots too that you know like we're ashamed to have that like people find out oh you've never seen that and yeah uh those like I've heard nothing but good things about those three movies specifically that you just watching like the fact that you're watching them multiple times like there's a reason why these movies percolate and people are like no yeah yeah you should watch this hundred percent um, like it's a, it's are, go ahead sorry no go ahead. I was gonna say these Please. are the I think these are the movies that you hear like the famous filmmakers be like but no these are the real movies you know what I yeah mean? <laughs> yeah i heard somebody point out and it's a thing that is like one of those simple statements that you're also like oh that makes complete sense yeah for sure there's those kind of truisms and it was just like the best filmmakers have the best taste in film 
And you're like, yeah, you know, that makes complete sense. Because um, it reminds me that I, re- I saw for the first time the movie Cure last week. Uh-huh. Which is the uh, K- Kiyoshi Kurosawa, Kurosawa movie from 1997. And before I watched it, I was like, I'm going to watch this. I've heard it's like deeply creepy and unsettling. Perfect. It's October. Let's do it. And then the thing that put me over the top to watch it, though, was that I saw that it was an influence on Memories of Murder. Uh, and I'm like, oh, oh, I'm in. There we go. Um, and I watched it, and it was creepy and deeply unsettling and really bothered me. And it's so good. If that movie came out today, it would be just as uh, critically acclaimed and popular, if not more so, today. It's amazing. I need to watch it. I, I, it was suggested to me the other day. I think it's just recently been remastered and put back out. And so I think that's why it's starting to percolate back up into the the general discussion. But I had a friend who was like, oh, I pre-ordered this. Uh, have you seen it? And I was like, no, I haven't. And he was like, oh, this is great. This is one of the best movies. And uh, I, need to, I need to check it out. I've been in an odd on- pl- place where I haven't watched very many uh, horror movies this year just because I haven't been able to bring myself to do it for some reason. So Really? It's, yeah. I don't usually do it like a, in some kind of like, it's October, so it's time to watch scary movies. I don't usually do that. I don't really feel compelled to do it typically. But for whatever reason, the switch flipped this year. And I was like, I'm going to watch these movies. And now I'm enjoying the experience enough to where the other, like yesterday I was going to watch a non horror movie. And I'm like, you can wait a week, a week and a half, <laughs> yeah. you know, like that type. Like, why not just do it? If I'm doing it, let's just keep doing it. So, I started watching like Dress to Kill last night, which is like not horror, but kind of has the elements, Hitchcocky and all that. But I stopped it and then I turned on Doctor Sleep to rewatch that. Nice, uh, a movie that I really enjoy, by the way. I think it's yeah, that was good. It's funny. I feel like I actually like the movie Doctor Sleep better than the movie The Shining, but I that's like the a book. Take. I know, but I like the book The Shining better than I like the book Doctor Sleep. <laughs> Okay, no, I, so, I. That's interesting. Yeah, it's. I think the fulcrum there around which everything's pivoting is the, the fact that you like the book The Shining so much, and that's going to inform, not liking the movie because, it's like the like, one. It's the one time Stephen King's been pissed off at an adaptation of it. Yeah, yeah. I still like. I still like the the movie The Shining, but I actually I think I do like Doctor Sleep more. I, Mike Flanagan makes just some really great stuff. Uh, I haven't watched Midnight Club yet, but. I haven't either. Uh, I don't know if you saw Midnight Mass last year. Like that was just phenomenal, and that, I enjoyed that movie very much. He loves his monologues. He does. I'll give him that. He does. Fair enough. I, but then I was really into it. I thought um, was it Hamish Linklater is amazing in that show. Yeah. Uh, I he also did um, I think it was uh, Ouija Book of Evil or something like that. That it's the sequel to to the first Ouija movie. He directed that. It's good. That's what I've the movie. always heard. I, I need to see it. He did you see Gerald's game? He did that. He I like um, that. He the first yeah. mo- I think the first um one of the first features he did is the movie Hush, mm-hmm. which is like a seventy eight minute feature um that all takes place in a cabin in the woods. And that movie's good. It's really well done. It's pretty well I was I last year I read an interview with him and he was talking about how he uh was working at a post house uh doing like visual like i think like just graphics like like motion graphics for stuff uh during the day and then he was working on hush at night and like i think his first two films were paid for through kickstarter and all that but he's just so talented that he was able to uh get to where he was getting bigger and bigger projects and um all the while, like, I don't think he stopped working. I think he'd already had Ouija maybe had already come out, uh, in theaters and he was still working as a motion graphics designer or whatever it was that he was doing something like very typical. Um, and it took a while before he could make being a, uh, a director, his full-time gig. Uh, that's so that, cool. Uh, I think is yeah, it's fascinating. Interesting. It weird. It's, um, it's weird, uh, because that trajectory of his, albeit like it was 10 years ago when he started that feels so not possible right now you know to be the thing of like person who earnestly works their way up and they go from 
slightly bigger project to slightly bigger project to slightly bigger project. Like the the altruism of that, or I guess the fairness of it, doesn't seem like that's how it works at all right now. Um, but hopefully, it's just more of a, you know, uh, Hollywood is so much about like ebbs and flows and trends, and then things are in style and they're hardcore in style, and then they go out of it just as quickly, and then you move on to the next thing. So hopefully, it's just you know more of a deviation than anything. Okay, I'm I'm bringing up Mike Flanagan stuff because I was just curious. I forget <laughs> all this stuff. Uh, yeah, I forgot about the haunting, the haunting at Hill House, and then the sequel. I never did see the sequel. Uh, it was the, good. Uh, it's is um, it um, the Bly Manor? Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's actually like it's worth it's worth watching. It's uh, it's a uh, it's romantic. Um, like it's a uh, it's it's not as spooky as the uh, uh as hill house but it's really great like okay um it's it's worth watching and there's like a performance that should have been like the thing is is like the performances in his stuff are so phenomenal and they just get overlooked um i think because was, horror horror i think gets short shrift you know it gets denigrated just like comedy does yeah to where they're like oh this is like stylized or maybe it's just the fact that the sheer volume of you know, those are the two most, uh, for lack of a better word, like bastardized genres of film and TV yeah. are comedies and horror. So people can really dismiss them. So when you get a good one, you're like, sure, but it's one of two million and everything else kind of waters it down, unfortunately. But he's very, I think he's very good at what he does. Yeah, it's it's the, the cream is rising to the top with, with his stuff. And I I can't imagine that he, like, especially as he makes more and more mini series that they don't like start popping up as like some of the best uh, things that get recognized by the people who recognize such things. But uh, I will say like Hill house has, and I don't know if I've uh, ever seen this in anything. It has the only like uh, emotionally motivated, dramatically necessary jump scare in a horror thing that i've ever seen in my life and um have you seen hill house did you say you did i did but like i saw it pre-pandemic i guess technically so it's kind of it's a major blur enough so to where i could rewatch it and mostly forget stuff i just remember really liking it it. it's really great it's like this there's a scene in the car and like we we were watching it and i remember and like we had the lights off and then it happened and we were like screaming <laughs> jumping <laughs> off the couch just like amazing and uh it, but it was like it was earned and motivated and it wasn't and i i feel like so many times uh that there are still earned like you know like in the scream movies you know it's like a scary thing suddenly ghost face is there and it, it makes sense for that but like this was something that i never experienced before to where like it was earned emotionally and i feel like that's the difference of what is going on with the stuff that he makes that makes sense uh well that's just better writing too it's versus you know it's it's like the difference of like writing the story you want and these things organically happening versus these are the five kills i want to put in this movie and we need to construct the movie around that right and those are two dramatically different entirely different motivations um, I was just thinking too that one movie that I saw earlier this month that I really enjoyed that I guess is like technically horror kind of sci-fi that is just odd but from the get-go I was in and I just didn't even know it existed was The Hidden. Have you seen that? I have not, movie no. Kyle MacLachlan. It is what a, a tonally odd film <laughs> but it's it starts off with a massive uh, car chase sequence like a bank heist and a car chase sequence and it doesn't let and it's and then it goes sci-fi it's fascinating and weird and again fascinating i love Is that it. something did he just do like a live watch on twitter about that the other day maybe he might have like, because it's on criterion i think uh, so is cure or on the criterion channel okay. right now i think for you know october uh which is why some of these movies are getting traction for the first yeah. time in a minute anyway and that's how i heard about it um, and that's how, like, you know, a couple of years ago, I saw The Exorcist 3 for the first time. 
which I also rewatched. Um, that movie's amazing. That's that movie should not work at all. <laughs> it shouldn't. It the the first one's the only one that should. Uh, and it's it's fascinating. I have a friend who actually loves Exorcist too. Like really, to him, it's a five star movie, uh, and it's so different than the first one. I've just I've only seen bits of it. You know, like it, I just see her like under a microscope in the lab scenes in that one but to like i know like i know it's kind of a maligned film but it does seem like the first one's the only one that should work but i didn't see i actually didn't see that movie until about seven years ago the original and it was how to hold up for you it it was disappointing because it's it's the film growing up you hear your whole life is the scariest film ever made and it's a well-made movie you know but it's like it it didn't scare me at all and um I feel like there's just so much that is baked into it for so many people. And I think so many people saw it maybe younger than they probably should have. And so that's why to them, it's the scariest thing they've ever seen. And just like the hype surrounding it, you know, I also don't have the Catholic baggage to add the layer that heightens it for a lot of people. Yeah. So I think that goes into it. Um, Cause it was, that movie was a phenomena phenomenon. Uh, yeah. for a lot of people, and then what did old Billy Free can do after that? He made Sorcerer. Yeah, his follow up. Nobody saw it, They're and like, here we this... are discovering it fifty years yeah. later or whatever. 50 yeah. Years later, <laughs> uh, I think it's kind of. I I kind of feel like The Exorcist is kind of probably similar to Blair Witch Project in that, like, if you're there at the time, it was yeah. super scary, and like I remember with that film like I've, I've watched it since and it's it's still probably one of the best found footage films i would say ever made but to the marketing surrounding that i remember going to the rudimentary websites and learning about the blair witch and just being terrified like thinking yeah. oh this is real these kids were killed by a witch <laughs> <laughs> but that goes to show you though that with a movie like that there was so much obviously to your point more going on it was mythologized before it ever came out yeah you know you heard about it but the thing you can't underestimate with a movie that lasts is it has to be good. Right. There has to be something that transcends just marketing or whatever else. The good movies are what stand the test of time more than anything else. Yeah. Like that's the long game. Um, oh, by the way, the thing about Exorcist 3, if you, you said you haven't seen it, right? Not yet, no. It's directed by the writer of the books. It's directed by William Peter Blatty. <laughs> Yeah. And it's based on his uh, book Legion. And it is like tonally, like 10 different movies tonally in one. But it works. Like, um, wh- what's his, uh, George C. Scott. There's one moment where it's him and a priest friend of his, because he plays a detective. And for a stretch of the movie, it's like a slapstick buddy comedy <laughs> of them doing jokes back and forth. Like, it's wild. And it's got Fabio in it for a second. It's got Patrick Ewing is in it for a second. Um, like That's a lot incredible. of random people that, but it, it works. Like it really, really works. Uh, and uh, Brad Dorf is in it and he's terrifying. It's, it's a great yeah, movie. I believe it. That dude always is. He's so good. Uh, I saw was a movie that he starred in that I hadn't seen before. I'm trying to look for it now. That was directed by um, John Huston, and I think it might have been John Huston's last movie, uh, Wise Blood. That's what it was. Okay. Very hard to watch. He played a devout, aspiring, like super devout, terrifying minister, and it's very it is it is an awkward watch. It was really hard to watch. Like it was more tense and bothersome to me than most horror movies. But uh, Dwarf is incredible in it. I believe that. Yeah. He's usually good and everything. He's, I, I, I haven't seen it all, but there's a, a Herzog film, Wild Blue Yonder, where he plays an alien on earth. Um, and wow, man. I need to, yeah, I need to actually sit down and watch it. It's on hoopla. I know that. Uh, but it's, uh, he's like monologuing and it's, uh, it's interesting cause he's supposed to be like an alien who's come to earth. And I think, I, if I recall correctly, I believe that maybe Herzog interviews some astronauts later on in the film, and 
I I've been curious to watch that just because he's he's such an odd fellow, uh, Duraf. And I'm, <laughs> they both they both are effectively odd, but yeah. but seemingly like benignly, harmlessly. So like in a in a way of like thank God they exist as opposed to please get away from me. They're very uh, right. anti Klaus Kinski in that regard. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Like uh, what an interesting person! I will I will walk on the other side of this, the street if I see them coming my way, like that. You know, thankfully they're not that at all. Uh, oh, I saw somebody um, somebody logged something on Letterboxd about like this thirty minute um, Werner Herzog documentary for, from it was it's like thirty minutes long from nineteen eighty six, and one thing I didn't realize is that apparently in the documentary he mentions at the time that he was trying to work on a documentary about climbing the Himalayas and a not documentary, a film about climbing the Himalayas that Klaus Kinski at the time was going to star in. And it was the first time I'd heard that that of that possibility, obviously it didn't come to fruition, but I'm like, wow, that would have been a fascinating disaster. It could have been. Yeah. That's probably why he would have been interested. He, I haven't seen it. There is a film that he, uh, made with, uh, um, Donald Sutherland that's about mountain climbing that I think came out in like 89 or 91 um, okay. that I can't find on anything uh, that I've been trying to search for. I can't remember what it's called either, but I wonder if that was the outgrowth of oh. the Kinski thing. And okay. Was it the, was the documentary you saw, was it that room 666 documentary? No. And somebody, you know, it, I know what you're talking about. It's something that somebody logged that I saw pop up of like, you know, your friends recently watched this that I'd never heard of before that I'm not curious to watch. I'm trying to look for it now. It's just called um, Portraits, colon, Werner Herzog from 1986. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So I don't know if that's going to be like, uh, could just be something on YouTube that you can watch pretty easily. It's 28 minutes long, apparently. Or if it was like some kind of extra on a DVD or something, I don't know. But I just read that and I was like, oh, that's interesting. That would have, Probably gone about as horribly as you expect anything Klaus Kinski related to go, <laughs> uh, you know, because he's he was a pretty terrifying human. Yeah, have but, you seen, have you seen yeah. My Best Fiend? No, um, no, I've got. A, I need to catch up on a lot of like earlier, smaller or whatever uh, Herzog related things. Yeah, My, it's it's from like '99, and it's fascinating because it's him like examining their professional and non-professional working relationship and like uh they they met each other when they were both very young like i think herzog was a child um when he actually first interacted with him if i recall correctly and um it's really fascinating because like i kinski seems like he was just like a terrible person that people would put up with because they could get great things out of them and uh that's the unfortunate thing is yeah he was a he was a human manifestation of a nightmare but but he wasn't completely irredeemable at least artistically right yeah (laughs) so it's 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 worth catching and you know like a lot of uh i think it it's in the shout factory like blu-ray box set but i think all those films are maybe like available to stream through shout factories like site okay uh, which is interesting that they they have a streaming site that you have to go to the url and you can watch stuff but i like nobody talks at least they did a couple of years ago i i don't know about the financial feasibility of that but every film that they put out in their like herzog blu-ray box set is available for streaming on their website or was yeah, because I know they have an add-on via like Amazon you can get for like four ninety nine or something, and you can watch whatever they have on there. But I've never checked it out or anything. I know that with Herzog, with his book that just came out like through, like a handful of months ago, the, the Twilight mm-hmm. World, it's like one hundred forty four pages. I've heard it's great. I really want to read it. Um, between that and the David Milch book, which I've heard is incredible, uh, I'm going to um, read both of those before the, the end of the year. The Twilight World, it, it is good. It's it's easy to read too. It's it's uh, more like written and as poetry almost. It's it's a pretty quick, even even being one hundred and forty four pages. I feel like uh, calling it a a novel is is a little bit of a stretch. But yeah, you know, like 
the the man's put in the work and i i imagine he truly probably wanted to make a film about onada uh but he i i wonder if if it's like just like him being aware of his age he's 80 years old and the difficulty to do it one more time going out into the jungle i don't this is pure speculation on my part yeah but i i wonder if that is maybe why he decided to put out put it out as a book because i kind of think maybe this is like an early process in how he writes is it's more the outline for the story but with his like there there are these like passages of kind of uh ethereal uh events that are happening and um it's it's definitely Herzog, uh, but it's you know, it, I I think you should check it out. It's it's easy to, it's an easy read. It like you you definitely could read it before the end of the year. That's okay, sure. that's how somebody described it to me. Of uh, that more than anything else, you know, it's like don't go into it thinking oh a novel. It's a traditional novel. It's more, it provides more insight into how his brain works than anything else. Yeah, it's similar. Um, he has a book called. Uh, I think it's called of walking on ice and it's like basically his uh, diary entries as he was walking from uh, Munich to Paris to uh, in yeah, his mind yeah. stop uh, Lottie Eisner from passing away and she didn't <laughs> die for another like 10 years, but uh, it's kind of that. And there's like passages in that where it's just like clearly like fever dream stuff that he was going through when he was trapped out in a cabin soaked to the bone and, in the winter and uh it it really reminded me a lot of this book um okay and, but he he's all about creation of facts too like he's not necessarily you know some of the stuff in it he could have very easily just made up you know so i love him <laughs> i love him he's great and ja- jack reacher too amazing Meaning Jack Reacher also not number two, right? Yeah. Watch watch the first Jack Reacher. Maybe maybe skip the second one, but love that movie. He's great in it. I wish he acted more. I know he was in that. He's also in a ensemble comedy about a casino or something. Yeah, the, it's like the something I forget the name of the, it. Oh, um, it's from the guy that directed another film with him in it called Incident at Loch Ness. Oh which, yeah, yeah. Is Zach Penn? Is that who it is? Yeah, Zach Penn. Okay. It's like the yeah, have you seen have you seen that incident, Lung Ness? I did. I saw it when it came out, and I remember enjoying it. Yeah, it's a it's a fun one because it's it's really fascinating. That I I see why Werner did it because it's uh such a great teardown of mockumentary style, but also like you would believe you'd believe that Werner Herzog would be making a documentary on the notions of myth surrounding the Loch Ness monster. A hundred percent. It's completely plausible in that, in his inclusion of that, like minimally, like it, it lent uh, a lot of like credence to it, but also was like, yeah, this, this would happen. I'd believe that in a second. I mean, you made a trilogy about nature involved like volcanoes and meteorites. And it's like, why not Nessie at that point? Sure. Right. Yeah. Sure. We need to wrap it up. But I was just made aware that uh, on Tuesday, October 25th, a movie will be streaming on HBO Max that I know nothing about and I'm very excited about. And that movie is called Barbarian and it's supposed to be awesome. Stream it. Watch it. I want to support movies like that more because it looks amazing. Yeah. Very excited. I have heard for the people I know who have seen it have been like, learn nothing, watch this film, like go into it completely blind. And I should, I'll probably... The narrative around it really is like the ubiquity of the movie more than anything is is that don't learn anything about it. Just go in blind. And you'll enjoy it. So it comes out tomorrow as of the time of this release. I don't know why I brought it up. I'm just really excited. I just want to put it yeah. out there. I'm excited to see what you think about it. Just because so many people I know who have seen it have been like, this is incredible. I- I'm hoping, yeah, I'm not a victim of the hype. The nebulous hype. I say that and I, in theory, should have been the victim of the hype with Maverick as well. And new. <laughs> new, new, new. Loved it very much. What all, if anything, you want to point people toward before we wrap it up? Uh, Yeah, so... You know, like uh, growing up in Arkansas, I worked with the Little Rock Film Festival for 10 years while it was still a thing. And the one of the guys that founded it was Brent Renault. So I think uh, it'd be cool to point people to the Brent Renault Journalism Foundation. Um, they're raising money uh, to go towards future 
uh, journalists that aren't afraid to go into situations to show what's really going on in the world. And I, I think that's kind of a thing that I would love to point people to um, and uh, for them to check out. I think the website's brentrenaudjf.org and Renault okay. is spelled R-E-N-A-U-D. Um, and I think that's something that uh, people should check out and uh, give if they're able. Great call. Yeah, and I'll, I'll link that with the show notes and everything too. So please check that out. Thank you for doing this. This was fun. Uh, thanks for having I really me. Enjoyed yeah. it. Yeah, that was a blast. Any movie talk I'm all about. I always love it. Even if I shoehorn barbarian-related announcements <laughs> in at the very end when they go in for the landing and switch to talking directly to the audience. Thank you all for listening. Please stay safe. Please take care. Be kind to yourself. Be kind to others. Lead with empathy. Be well. Thank you again. Bye-bye. <laughs>